it feels like influence is much, much more valued than creativity. And that sucks. It's easier to follow trends to find success as long as your metric of success is clicks and views and plays and all of those things, which do have financial attachments to all of them, than it is to just trying to pursue what is creatively, socially meaningful. Social media has shown us that in, in a more vivid way than any other creative endeavor. The path to success as it's defined there, money and fame, has never been more vivid. It does make me want to go back and purely focus on the creative and see that if I can use my platform, which is still big, to find success, that will be very reassuring. I still see myself as like a filmmaker who just really likes to use YouTube as a means of distribution. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking creativity, we're talking filmmaking, we're talking storytelling, we're talking about the unhealthy incentives that are driving media, both social media, traditional media, and the creator economy, all of which is headed, I think we can agree, in a perilous direction. What else do we talk about? The difference between external and internal validation and just tons more. And we're doing it with the godfather of YouTube, the king of vlogging himself, Casey Neistat. Many of you might be surprised to learn that this is actually Casey's fourth appearance on the podcast, but all of our previous conversations were like seven or eight years ago. So lots of catching up to be done. And if you enjoy today, perhaps mine my early archive for episodes 73, 144, and 174. For those un or less familiar with Casey, he's one of the biggest and most popular creators on YouTube with over 12.5 million subscribers. It's a trajectory underscored by this daily vlog that he commenced in March of 2015 when he began uploading a new video every single day for something like 800 days in a row. And while he was at it, really elevating the form with this flair for cinematography and editing that had never before been seen, matched with a really extraordinary skill for storytelling that just captured the fascination of millions of people all over the world. In addition to being a friend and occasional running partner, Casey is also an entrepreneur. He's an angel investor, he's a husband, he's a dad, and he's the director of a new documentary called Under the Influence, which chronicles the trajectory of a young YouTube creator named David Dobrik, who went from massive popularity to disgrace and the ugly broader truths of the creator economy that incentivized that demise. I always love sitting down with Casey. I really enjoyed this talk and it's coming right up, but first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that 
People often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. All right, you know what? Nothing else to really say about this other than let's do it. This is me and Casey Neistat. Good to see you, man. I'm happy to be doing this. I was reflecting on the first couple of times that we did this. It's been so long. I think the first time we did it was like 2014. You've been on three times, I think, but way back. The last time we did it was before you even started the vlog. Yeah, I want to say, like, I have a very vivid recollection of you with your podcasting suitcase right. in my office. 
And I don't know if it was the first or the second time, but I just remember the conversation being so good and so engaging. And much like today, I had some bullshit. You were like, we were like 45 minutes in and you're like, I gotta go. No, we were 45 <laughs> minutes in and you stopped it. And I was like, why are you stopping? You're like, Casey, you said you only have 45 minutes. Right. And I was like, shit. And I had to go to some other time. parent teacher conference or some nonsense then right. to, but so it goes. Yeah, man, check this out. Look what I got here. Oh, I know that pen very I well. Know. Yeah. I lose pens like crazy. And for some reason I cannot lose this pen. Wherever I go, it ends up turning up and I still have it. So this, is, this pen is a, um, one of those four color pens that has the red, yellow, no, I'm sorry, the red, green, blue, black ink options in the back. And do you know what makes that pen special? No. Okay, this might be fiction, but I've been telling people this for the better part of the last 15 years. So if it is fiction, I'm just gonna continue preaching it as the word of God. But to the best of my knowledge, that's the last, Bic is a French company. That's the last pen that Bic still makes in France. I had no that idea. is not made in China. If you look on the side of that, it's made in France. And also the ones you buy in the store that are, are half blue and half white, like the plastic case, mm-hmm. they have a little ball on the end. And that one has a little like loop on the end that I put a piece of string through, other end they're rich, other end, flip it over, like, oh, bam. That, yeah, this little lanyard. Yeah, well that lanyard had to be tied off. So it was always my intern or my assistant's job every year around Christmas time where I'd ship all my friends and loved one a new pen to tie off those lanyards. And the most important part about those lanyards is that the ends be burned, otherwise they'll fray. Uh-huh. But I entrusted this individual to tie it correctly, which is in an eight knot. That's an eight, right? Yeah, and it's burned at the end. And then burn it at the end and um, and then package it up with my letter and ship it off. And then like one year I was at some friend's house and they're like, I still have your pen. And it was frayed mm. and I was fucking devastated. <laughs> I like what, yeah. I felt like such a fucking charlatan in that moment. Like I, like this person thinks this pen's cool and I'm looking at it and it's such a half-assed job. You had delegated that task yeah, I fired the employee immediately. Did you? Well, there's no way that happens on accident. Uh-huh. That means I thought I can get away with this because no one's double checking my work. Lesson right. learned, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Hence this maniacal attention to detail and quality that is the hallmark it either of is the or Casey isn't. Neistat experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's funny that we're doing this now because you're about to jettison Los Angeles and, and head back to New York. I think during the whole time that you've lived here, we've seen each other, I don't know, three times maybe. So I look forward to like you returning to New York accidents. where I get to see you and spend more time with you. you it's here. funny because also, um, like I've run into you here on accident one or two times. Mm-hmm. And in New York City, I've literally ran into you a couple well, it's times easy. Like I come, it's like running. I don't need to text you or call you. I'm just gonna go run along the path along the Hudson and I'll see him if I go between eight and 10 a.m. or whatever, it's a good chance yeah. and pretty much, you know, with unfailing regularity, that would occur. Look, you've got like whatever, 10, 12 hours of solid daylight. You know, I'm gonna be on a two hour run. That means you've got like a, anywhere from a 15 to 25% chance of running into me. Right. So I'll take those odds. Right, so we'll, we'll revisit that yeah, soon, again. <laughs> right? So you're leaving in like 10 days, yeah? No, I'm leaving in like 36 hours. Oh, wow. The, yeah, wow. the family's leaving after me. Mm. So I'm going earlier because I'm, I'm driving my truck which is something that I enjoy immensely. And it's an excuse to like just transport stuff, yeah. you know, like fill my truck up with the stuff we couldn't get into the moving trucks. And then the wife and kids are coming, um, yeah, a few days after. Uh-huh. 
What are you looking forward to the most about getting back? Well, to the hood? it's it's. I mean, most is the short answer is work. I really never found my footing when it came to my work in Los Angeles, and I think what I underestimated was how much I depend on New York City for just like. I fucking hate these words, but both like a creative inspiration and then a motivation. There's mm-hmm. something contagious about that. There's yeah. this great rich role quote that I use all the time. That's the truth. I never use this quote to you, Rich, but you did tell this to me. You said, when you step outside in New York City, a story hits you in the face. You said that to me when I was about to move here and I did not understand that. And I'm like, what do you mean? You step out anywhere and you see a, a story hits you in the face. But I didn't realize how specific that was to New York City for me. 100%. So there's like a profundity, if that's a word, there's something yeah. profound about that in New York. And that's the one thing that I'm, I'm, I yearn for. Yeah, I remember telling you that. And uh, it, it, it's just true. It's something that's endemic and unique to New York City, the energy and the vitality of it. There's stories everywhere and life kind of happens to you when you live in New York and here, it's very different. You have to seek things out. You have to be much more intentional about what you're doing. And it's it's a different vibe. And I, I had that sense that you were gonna be challenged moving here in terms of you know how you think about and execute on storytelling. Yeah, look, I think there's 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 something extraordinary to be learned from that. One, it's it's and I bring this up to my wife often, like what a wild luxury it is for us to be, you know, a married couple in our forties with two little kids and one grown kid and just be like, you know what? Fuck it, we wanna do it. And packing up and moving 3000 miles. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later being like, you know, this was a good experiment. I'm really glad we did this. And the takeaway is this isn't where we belong. This isn't where we're gonna find the most happiness for us or our family. So let's do it again Mm -hmm. and move back. Right. And but it served its purpose. I mean, you, your, in terms of intentionality, I mean, your intention was to come here and hit the brakes anyway, right? And then COVID happened, which you know exacerbated that, of course. But you know, I remember you saying, like, I'm here to just, you know, basically indulge myself, right? Like, I'm gonna do the fitness stuff and I'm gonna have fun and I'm just taking my foot off the gas of all work stuff altogether. And you had the luxury to be able to do that, but you really leaned into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no question about it. I even made a movie to that effect before I left. And like the basic premise of the, that short video was that for me, it was impossible to sort of hit that switch to turn off. And it was like predicated on this idea of, you know, when I had my son, I was very young and broke. So I didn't have an opportunity to just chill out and make mm-hmm. it about family life. I had to work. And if I found myself in that position again, that I would chill out and make it about family. And and I needed to break away from New York City in order to do that. So like the revisionist history of it is like absolutely mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that I'll be able to bring some of my chill back to New York. That was my question. Cause you've lived on these polarities, but can you blend those and still maintain a modicum of like work-life balance or are you afraid when you return to New York, you're gonna hit the ground running and fall back into that like maniacal pattern? I, I call me naive. Um, and when we do our fifth podcast together, yeah. you can literally call me naive if I'm wrong, but I think I can. And the reason why is I only ever knew one version of not just life in New York City, but life. You know, like I moved to New York City when I was 19, 20 years old, totally broke. And it was a dead sprint. It was a dead sprint 
And I did find success and I found sort of financial freedom, I, I, financial security, a family, all those things I was looking for. But it was after, you know, 19 years of fighting. And so then after, you know, 19 years of fighting, I'm still in the city, but I achieved all these things that I had hoped to achieve. I couldn't just stop. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. So by forcing myself out of the city, coming to Los Angeles, I was able to sort of catch my breath, look around and be like, okay, I get it now. And I think that it's a very different version of me going back to New York and I'll be able to appreciate the city for different reasons. And I'll be able to appreciate family life for different reasons. My life is certainly much more set up now to be about being a dad and taking care of my kids and being a husband than it was three years ago when I left New York. So I, I do think I'll be able to find that. Your marriage survived the intensity of the vlog period. And it also survived the intensity of just basically cohabitating 24 seven, right? Like being cooped up. Yeah, That's I a mean, pretty good stress test for- Survive is yeah. such a generous word. As far <laughs> as the binary of like, we are not divorced, that is fact. Right. But there is such a, a, a marriage is such a rubber band. And sometimes it's really stretched the edge. And sometimes you've got a lot of slack mm-hmm. and, um, I think, yeah, during the vlog period, working seven days a week, it was at its absolute, you know, max you could probably stretch that rubber band. And um, certainly there've been struggles in the last couple of years. Yeah. The kids being home from school is a major. Is there a sense of what the projects are when you return that you're gonna start executing on? Majorly. Yeah. Um, I have to give this answer context, but it's like I, started my career somewhat in the traditional media space. I was making movies that went to film festivals. I was pr- producing feature films that went to film festivals and played in theaters. I had a TV show on HBO. And then with all of that sort of traction in my career, I ultimately got frustrated because I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. So I ran to YouTube in like 2010, 2012. And I built this, you know, that's when I really found success. And then I took that success and I moved here to LA and I was like, well, let me make another feature film. And I made it another, a feature length documentary the last, it took me three years to make. And if there's one takeaway from this movie that, you know, premiered at a film festival, very well received, it's that I fucking hate it. I hate it. I hate everything about- You hate the traditional mechanisms I hate it. Of, I hate the act yeah. of creation. I hate the act of distribution. That's not an act, but I hate the means of distribution. I hate all of it. You hate the creation? I hate the creation of feature films. I don't like that. I don't like that process. I don't like the collaborative process. I don't like working with others. I, had, I worked with the most brilliant editors in the world on mm-hmm. my doc. And you had they Christine Vachon also. Who's one of my favorite people. Yeah, and this is an excuse. I hate all of it. And, and when I say I hate all of it, I'm, I'm looking at a binary and that is like what the process of, of creating in that world is, which is I had a really great team and all this, or just sitting alone in my studio by myself with a laptop and a camera. That I fucking love, I love it. So what's beneath that? What's behind that? Like, why is it that you're so frustrated by the collaborative aspect of filmmaking you know, or, you know, kind of the shenanigans that come along for the ride with it, it, making a movie in the traditional it, way? I don't, it could be the lack of agency. It could be because I'm able to look at a project that's done collaboratively and be like, wow, if I see weaknesses, I'm able to, you know, say there's somebody else's fault, you know, dismiss aspects of, of my work that I don't think are 100% as somebody else's responsibility. I don't know the answer. And I can tell you like, I know a number of fine artists 
that both were completely alone. Mm -hmm. They sit in their studios by themselves, no music and they mm -hmm. paint. And then I know a bunch of fine artists that have like, I, I have one artist friend who's a sculptor in New York City. I think he has like 18 or 20 people working for him. And that is where he thrives. And when it comes to filmmaking, I, I'm that guy who wants to sit alone. I wanna like, my favorite is even like, I have, you know, I have a, a decent sized studio in New York City that requires a second set of hands to help me operate the place and get the lights on and make things work and things like that. When I'm in my studio, that individual, my studio manager can't physically be in the studio. Right. Typically I have a separate space for them to sit all day because that's how much I cherish being alone. I relate to that deeply, but I've had to kind of grow and evolve in order to be able to continue doing this thing that I love. Because as you know, it was me in a traveling suitcase. I think Tyler, my stepson came with me yeah. one time to your studio. He's Another solid. time Mathis came who just graduated high school, by the way, which is crazy. Unbelievable. Um, but in order, and, and, and being a total control freak over like every detail of the production and the editing and everything, I would do all of it myself. But it just became untenable. Like I wanted to be able to continue to do this and I had to like, figure out how to get comfortable letting go of certain things and empowering other people. Like you're here in the studio and as you see, there's other people here that help me now. And that's challenging at times because, you know, sometimes it's like, I would do it this way, but, you know, I want them to feel like they're contributing meaningfully in a creative way. And I have like made peace with that and it allows me to still maintain this love affair with the most important part of it, which is like having the conversation so I can continue to do it. Cause it's like, it's 10 years that I've been doing this. So I understand that tension and that conundrum. And I think when you're personality type like yourself, that's where you get into the problems with burnout because you can't, it's difficult to scale what you're doing. If everything, every decision, you know, you're the bottleneck on every, iota of the creative process, but right. that's what being an artist is If, if I limit it though to, I, I hear you, but I think if you limit it to the creative process, meaning that that absolute agency, that like working singularly, that, that lone wolf thing, if you, if you limit it only to the creative process, I think it's a very different equation. So that even that artist who sits alone with no music painting, you know, by herself, cause she doesn't like to work well, she still has an art dealer. Mm -hmm. She still has somebody who, who, you know, makes sure that her cell phone bill is paid every month. She still has uh, people who support and enable her career. I still work with, you know, brilliant people at WME that I've been with forever that help negotiate brand deals and the sorts of things that keep the lights on. Um, I still wanna have a studio manager to help me keep that studio functional. But when it comes to the creative process, the thing that I love the most, I have no interest in sharing it. I wanted, I wanted to just be me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it harkens to that thing. I've heard you say many times, like managers wanna have meetings and creators just wanna be left alone to create, <laughs> totally. right? And on some level to, you know, create something that scales beyond you, you kind of need both. But, you know, if you're tipping heavily towards the creators just wanna create, like there's no room or tolerance for meetings and phone calls Not and interested. emails and all that kind of stuff that, that comes, you know, along for the ride when you achieve some level of success. Yeah, I, I also think that there's, uh, uniquely I'm staring at an opportunity that I don't know that I've appreciated in the past, but so much of my 
reach or you know whatever the quantifiers are for success on YouTube. So much of that was done at an insane pace when I was doing you know 365 videos a, a year mm-hmm. for years on end. You know, 800 videos strong, day after day after day that I only really understood that cadence. And I haven't really made any videos in the last couple of years. I've made a a few here and there, but in going back, when I go back rather, like I'm definitely not interested or capable or able um, ever to go back to that cadence of seven Mm -hmm. days a week. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in in having the videos be so sort of self-centered and really just about me my creative interests, my my interests in the sort of themes that I hope to share have expanded a lot. So I, I think that I can be as, uh, I think that I can find a level of success by just making it about quality mm-hmm. and just like trying to tell the stories that I wanna tell as best as I can possibly tell them. And if some days that's a little bullshit story about nothing, great. Right. In some days it's about, you know, bigger and more existential topics that I lay in bed thinking about every day. That's also fantastic. And is that still in the context of identifying yourself as a YouTuber, like this identity, or have you kind of grown beyond that? Well, I, I, what's funny is I think that that identity has evolved so much in the last couple of years. Like YouTuber is not really as much of a thing anymore. Right. Like I think YouTube has really abandoned defining that. YouTube as a company has given up on trying to define that. I think necessarily so. I think that this awful title of influencer has sort of swept up everything. And I think that now to be successful in social media, it's predicated on on sort of dominating all the platforms. Mm-hmm. I don't see myself as falling into that category. In fact, like I I think, and this sounds so self-righteous and obnoxious, but I'll, I'll say it gently, like I still see myself as like a filmmaker who just really likes to use YouTube as a, as a means of distribution. Yeah. You know, it's, my wife and I were invited to the Cannes Film Festival like three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I've been there a couple of times before with movies that I've produced. Like my friends, Josh and Benny Safdie are big movie directors right. now. When we were all kids in our early twenties. Like we made these feature films together. They're movies, but I helped them figure out how to get them made, which made me the producer. And we premiered movies there. But I was there as sort of this broke adolescent. Uh-huh. Adolescent's not fair, young adult. And it was quite the experience. And I went back this time as a guest. My wife and I were invited guests of uh, one of the title sponsors. So we were there as like VIPs. We got limo rides to the red carpet. We got hair and makeup and shit like that. And we we saw a big movie premiere in the gigantic thing, like gigantic theater. And when it was over, like we were like doing the standing ovation which um, is required. You always hear about the standing ovations right. from Kent. It's not a fucking option. You can't be like, nah, I didn't like it. I'm gonna sit this one out. No, no, no. You fucking stand and you applaud till your hands go numb. That's what you do. Welcome Was to France. Was it the Elvis movie? Which movie? Well, I saw, we saw a bunch. Yeah, you I heard the Elvis movie got like a 12 minute yeah, standing sure. ovation. Yeah, sure, pick a number. How about 18 yeah. minute? Fuck it, call it a two hour standing <laughs> ovation, whatever works for marketing. But as we were participating in that um, required standing ovation, I turned to Candace and I was like, this is why a lot of people do it. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, this is what's important to, to some people in the creative space. Like when they think of what success is in this creative world, in the world of Hollywood, it's this, it's like wearing a tuxedo and a gown, be surrounded by your peers, being applauded, sharing a movie in a theater like this, walking down a red carpet like this, literally physically being celebrated. 
And I say that in a condescending way, and I don't mean for that to be condescending. I respect that pursuit, I think. But I also know that pursuit is not mine. I fucking hate that. Like I premiered my movie at South by Southwest. Wonderful, mm-hmm. such a supportive crowd, such, I fucking hated it. I do not, what I like to do is click upload, close my laptop, and then go, running. go home, go for a run. If I check the numbers the next day and they're good, great. If I forget to check the numbers, that's also fine. I don't know that I've ever watched my movies unless I catch my older daughter watching them after I've clicked upload. I like to make and move on. And that just feels good to me. Like it's purely about the act of creation. And being at Cannes, being at that prestigious film festival was such a moment of validation. I was like, this is so, it makes it made it so vivid what I wanna do in a world where like, you know, I think as someone who puts videos on the internet, it does, you feel smaller there. You feel like you don't matter as much there. I always have to be like, oh, I also used to make feature films and I had a show on HBO. Right, it's like, no, fuck right, that. Right. I put my movies on YouTube. Right. You just click play. But that's a healthier, that's a healthier sensibility. It is the internal validation of leveraging your creativity to like make something and share it with the world. And that in and of itself is its own reward. Anything beyond that is just fluff, right? It's not the thing, the externalities are not the motivator, right? And if you're chasing validation externally, it's not a great path. Yeah, I mean, or it is, I don't know. But I I just know that certainly when I was younger, like I'm not gonna sit here, when I was a kid and had no validation was just saw myself as sort of a loser. That external validation was everything. But I'm like old, like I've got kids now, they're like great. Mm. Like I I don't need praise. Like I wish my wife would smile at me more, but right. besides that, like I don't need- well, That's pray. good. Cause you're not gonna get it from your kids or your wife, so. My, kid, my little <laughs> one tells me I do a good job sometimes when I, she catches me coming home from my runs, but good job, daddy. But no, that external- That'll change. That, <laughs> that external <laughs> validation, it's just, it's not interesting to me. So much so that like, I wanna be really careful that that's not why I do it. Like mm. I genuinely, there's something about, you know, Candace, my wife used to say to me, if I wanna know how you're feeling, I have to watch your fucking videos because I'm so inept at sharing emotions in the real world. But, I, but she, she found that I was good at that in the video. Mm-hmm. Like there's something I take from making videos that is so satisfying. Whether I just, last video I made literally was a video. My friend invited me to like go surfing with him and his family. And I made him like a special video for like his nine-year-old kid. Yeah. And I sent him a private link and I've watched to the, today, to date, it's been seen by four different ISP addresses. So I think his kids watched it 20 times, but from one address, only mm-hmm. four different people have seen this. I'm so psyched about that. I'm so proud of that video. I take such immense like self-satisfaction, like I did it. There's a sense of victory in making that video. It took me a couple of days to edit it. And like, you know, four people watched it. Yeah, it's sweet though. Sure, but it, that is as satisfying for me. So in going back to New York City to bring this full circle, it's like, I don't know that I was ever so self-aware when it came to my career. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to really lean into that. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye. And I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, 
it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. What is the, the kind of broader perspective that you've gleaned now that you put distance between like the crazy period when you were vlogging every day? Like when you reflect back on that period of time, 
does it have a different meaning for you now than it did when you were in the midst of it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always impossible to grasp when you're there. One, it feels so permanent. It always feels like you're going to be, you know, going a thousand miles an hour. But looking back at it, I, you know, I recognize how extraordinary it was. And I also recognize that you really, you kind of get that once and that's it. You don't, you'll never duplicate that. You'll never be new again. Like to be the new thing, mm-hmm. you only get to do that once. Right. And it was at, a, I mean, the timing also was at a period in the evolution of YouTube sure. where, you know, you were kind of at the right guy at the right place who was elevating that medium beyond anything I'd ever seen before. And it just captured the fascination of so many millions of people. I mean, it was a crazy thing. And just for people who are listening or watching who don't really know what we're talking about, like Casey made a vlog, a daily 10 minute video every single day, like 800 days in a row, some crazy amount of time, right? Yeah. Never missed a day. And each one of these videos was its own kind of work of art, like this beautifully rendered story with a three act structure with incredible cinematography and editing and you speaking to camera, always imparting some kind of, you know, pearl of wisdom or sharing some experience that you had that that kind of had meaning that transcended your own specific personal life that just struck a chord with so many people. And as somebody who kind of tried to dabble in that, like I, I just, I can't imagine how you were able to do that every single day. I mean, it had to commandeer every facet of your life from the moment you woke up in the morning until you know you went to bed if you went to bed at all yeah it was, it was every every neuron was firing in service of that show and it was uh yeah and i think like a, a a pivotal part no one was helping me i had no writers right. no editors no cameramen like no one helped me on any episode and when i tried i brought in my most talented friend who's a much better filmmaker than i am much better editor than I am. And he's brilliant and his sensibility is just like mine. And I was like, this is gonna make things so, it made it twice as oh, hard. Dan, are you talking about Dan Mace? Yeah, when I brought in yeah. Dan Mace, phenomenal creator, phenomenal filmmaker, like wildly celebrated, hugely successful filmmaker. And he came in and gave it everything he had and it made things go exactly half the speed. It was right. twice as much work to have somebody <laughs> help me. But yeah, it was, it was all consuming. It was, I think that maybe the, easiest way to encapsulate it was your eyes are really wide and you're always looking around. So it's like, I'm, I'm here with you right now in real life, Rich, but it's if I was making my video for the day, I'd be like, what is this? Like, why am I here? What about this moment is meaningful to me? And how do I share that inside of 20 seconds? How can I make sense of this moment to my audience in my video that goes beyond just saying, mm-hmm. I went and recorded a podcast with my friend, Rich. And I would have to answer that question. I would have to come up with something that, that was compelling that did that. And once I did that, then this could be a segment. Right, but if I, you couldn't, then you wouldn't participate, right? Would, like probably wouldn't include Every experience that you were having or could potentially have was calibrated only in the context of how it would contribute to that day's video. Exactly. And that which meant is a friendship. That's like crazy making to live your life that way. Completely, friendships. Uh, relationships, lunches, like I'm, no meetings. I'm not taking a meeting unless it was, I could make it into a, a scene in the, a, a, in the movies, which was really hard to do. Meetings are not interesting. So most meetings I would just say no. Um, I remember Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to meet once and I called my, my agent called me, he's like, Katzenberg wants to meet with you. And I was like, whoa, I was like, that guy's a huge deal. I was like, 
you think I can film it? And he's like, no, you can't film it. And I was like, tell him I'm busy, I can't do it. And he's like, Casey, you don't. And I was like, okay, 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 okay. And I remember it like fucked up my day. Right. It's like an hour and 20 minutes at lunch where I'm like drumming my fingers because I'm thinking to myself, this is really gonna set back today's production. Um, but it was always, it was a pursuit of interestingness that was just unrelenting. And I don't think I could do that anywhere outside of New York City. Mm -hmm. I think having a highly controlled environment made that very easy to do. Having a revolving cast of characters that I knew I could call on made that doable. And it was myriad other factors, but I think we started this off by you were asking me, what is it like when I think about that now versus... Right, like your perspective on you know what it means to you and kind of how it set you up for the career that you wanna have or maybe don't wanna have. I, I think that the biggest difference was everything was fair game then. And when I say that, I mean like the depths of my psyche were fair game, like nothing was off limits. I say that obviously my family was off limits. Like I, I, when my children turned, when my oldest daughter turned one, I stopped putting my kids in all together because she stopped looking like a baby and started to look mm -hmm. a little bit distinguishable. So I cut my kids out, which made it challenging. But I mean, like, as far as me, there was nothing I would omit. There was no version of myself that I wouldn't externalize. And that fucks you up. Like I, I did that as I was, you know, a 37, 38 year old, fairly well-adjusted adult man. And I had completely exhausted who I am. It was like I, the orange that was my brain. I squeezed every ounce of juice out of it. And that was really destructive in the long. You start to really get fucked up. And I highlight that I was a well-adjusted man when I did it because you hear so much about creator burnout and, and mm -hmm. YouTubers struggling with mental health and all of those issues because I couldn't imagine being an 18, 19 year old you know, girl who found a similar level of success and she felt that obligation. Right. I have friends of mine who are that age, 24 year old dude who just like put everything he had into his videos. And then a year later, he's just toast. Um, so that was really challenging. And it made me really vulnerable in a way that I never wanna do that again. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine the toil and the toll that that would have taken. Um, but what, what is interesting to me and reflecting back on it is, you know, at that moment in time, certainly vlogging wasn't new. There were plenty of people vlogging, but those vlogs were generally like, we go get coffee, now we're, you know, walking and we're gonna go have lunch. They were kind of plodding and, and, and very kind of episodic in a not great way. And I think, you know, what a lot of people talk about when they talk about your vlogs is, the you know the the music and the the cinematography and the editing and the kind of kinetic energy of these things but really what i think people miss or don't fully appreciate is the storytelling like every story did have this three act structure a very traditional structure and even if that story was very small like i need to retrieve my my drone or something like that like you would make it interesting through specificity and like this economy that you applied to storytelling, to just showing what is meaningful to propel the story forward. And I think that's what people connected with, even if they weren't aware of it. Like they think it's because you have these fancy drone shots and stuff like that, but really the, the engine behind the whole thing was the storytelling. Yeah, and I think also, thank you for saying that. I think that what you just articulated is a much harder thing to define it's really easy to be like, oh, I love the way you shoot it and your music's so cool. The irony is like you just type Casey music into YouTube, you can just download all the same shit that I use. <laughs> um, that's really easy to define. It's really hard to define what you just 
said, but I think you, that was certainly my pursuit. Like I remember, for example, like I, I, I had this awesome jacket that I bought that got all fucked up. So I went to a friend of mine and I was like, can I remake this jacket? And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll help you. And he brought me to Midtown to these like leathersmiths that exist in New York City. And there's a really easy superficial story there, which is like, oh, I wanted to make a new jacket. So my friend brought me to this place and now we're making a new jacket. Mm-hmm. And like you just scratch at the surface and I stopped there and I'm looking at like, what's interesting about this? And it's like, well, I didn't know this even existed. And it's like, well, I've lived in New York City for 15 years at this point. I didn't know this existed. I bet you no one knows this existed. So let's start with that. Let's predicate this story on that. The fact that no one knows that in New York City behind these closed doors on the fourth floor of this fucked up office building on 38th street, that there's this like 80 year old guy who manages 20 seamstress and all they do is make handcrafted leather goods in New York City. And let me tell that story. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was fascinating. And my bet always was that if it was genuinely interesting to me, there's probably an audience that would also be interested in it in the same way. Yeah. But how often would you have to manufacture some story? Or did you, like in the practical kind of logistics of all of this, did you map it out? Like, okay, Thursday, I know I'm gonna go see this person. Saturday, this is gonna do it. You know, I'm gonna do this. Or you're just reacting to the world as it it kind of unfolds in front of you. The second I would click upload and that video was live, then and only then could I start to think about the next right. video. And when you're going seven <laughs> days a week, there's not a lot of um, fat. Uh-huh. So mm. there must've been some days where you're like, shit, I don't have anything. Well, that's when I stopped. It's like, people always say how much, how painful it is reading the comments. It's not comments that are painful, even ones that like make fun of you or tell you your videos suck, none of those hurt. The only comments that hurt are the ones that tell the truth. And I remember towards the end, like videos being like, feels like Casey's just making videos about anything now. And it Mm. was like, it was so the truth because I had really exhausted. And I don't know if I was exhausted or if I had exhausted, but I was struggling to find those sorts of genuine moments of interestingness. And I was starting to, fake them is not fair, but just make things about, make videos about things that are much more superficial, but then apply my formula to it. So you know, it looked the same, it felt the same, but they didn't feel the same. And I knew I was doing that. Um, I think maybe I lied to myself for a little bit, but I knew I was doing that. Yeah. And that's when I knew it was time to take a break. Right, well, it was an intrinsically unsustainable affair to begin of with. Of course, you know? <laughs> of course. Um, which kind of beggars the larger question about like the creator economy and the, the kind of incentives that are built into that, that, you know, drive people to, you know, kind of, do things maybe they shouldn't make bad decisions or burn out and have all of these mental health problems. And, you know, we're seeing that you've made a documentary on this subject. So, you know, where do you see, like, what is the state of the union when it comes to like the fucking, I hate this, the creator economy or the influence, you know, like as, as sort of the grandfather of, or, or somebody who, you know, holds some responsibility for birthing this new, you know, generation of, of, of creators. Like, how do you see that? Cause you usually, you have pretty, you know, keen observational skills about what's going on, what's going wrong and, you know, how to make it better. Sure, well, I, I, I don't know about the latter about how to make it better, but I can tell you from afar, not even from afar, I think I pay pretty close attention. It feels like, and this is a bleak, this is a bleak uh, response, but it feels like influence is much, much more valued 
than creativity. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that people take issue with, with me saying that. I hope that's just me being cynical. But, you know, TikTok, I think, is the most amazing, horrifying both delivery uh, mechanism and creation mechanism I've ever seen. Um, brilliant because I've never ever experienced an interface that is just so easy to find new things. It's you don't. There's no sort of cognitive burden. There's no like spending 20 minutes figuring out what Netflix you want to watch or scrolling through YouTube to see which which thumbnail is the most attractive. It no just, decisions to be made. There's no decisions to be made. If you're not interested, you just flip it and you're on to the next. And it's a that's fucking incredible slash terrifying. Um, and then from a creation perspective, it's fascinating that they've removed all those barriers. They give you special effects that you can do in camera. They give you the camera, which is your phone. They give you amazing soundtracks, which is that I watched this video and I liked it. So I'm just gonna use that audio. And it's like, they've overcome all of those creative barriers. But at the end of the day, I don't know that that has bolstered creativity. I think what it has done is it has made the top of the funnel so much wider than it's ever been. Like if the top of that funnel was super narrow when you know you and I were really young, when we we're in the '90s, when to be a filmmaker meant being an indie filmmaker and getting mm-hmm. into a film that was fucking impossible to do. And then it got a little bit wider and a little bit wider, and then YouTube and anybody could now share with the world. But you still had to figure out how to create and make and all that shit. TikTok's gotten rid of everything, and now the top of the funnel is wider than it's ever been but it still feels like the bottom of the funnel, like really amazing stuff that you watch and it means something to you is as small as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is ephemera. Yeah. And on TikTok, it's not even about following people that intrigue you. It's just about reacting to whatever the algorithm decides you might wanna look at. Sure, so if, you know, in the course of a year, I'm making numbers up, but if in the course of the year, you, you see a hundred things, you know, paintings or hear songs or watch movies or YouTube videos or uh, see a picture or, or watch a TikTok that affect you, that you don't stop thinking about. We're now seeing a million but that number of how many affect you, like that hasn't moved for me. Mm-hmm. I don't see more brilliant stuff. I just see more stuff. And what concerns me is that that's what's sort of being celebrated is like, now it's purely about the metrics and not about how you achieve those metrics. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that goes. I don't know where that goes from here. Um, and I don't know what that means. Like I, I had a very, I think eloquent sort of monologue about how, the egalitarianization of filmmaking is gonna mean it finally is a, an art form that everybody has access to. And we're not gonna get to see new perspectives and ideas shared in ways we'd never seen before because you don't have to go to NYU film school to make something. And I think that probably is still true, but we're watching it manifest and it's not, I'm not seeing new brilliant shit. That's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. And that kind of sucks. Uh, it does make me want to go back and purely focus on the creative and see that if I can use my platform, which is still big, to find success, yeah. that that will be very reassuring. But yeah. if I you know, if I make stuff that I still feel like is good and I'm really proud of and nobody watches it, I don't know what that would be. <laughs> I'd still be psyched. You still have the satisfaction of-, of I'll still be psyched yeah, about it. As long as I think right? it's I'll still be psyched but about it. Is, it. Yeah, but it is, yeah. But it would be the, telling of, the, of where we are right now. You know, is somebody more likely to try to follow in your footsteps or 
Are they gonna pivot to TikTok where it's just easier to audience capture and create these short little things yeah. and, and jump on trends? To be really cynical, you know, it's like-, like Are you gonna be like uh, the guys that made everything everywhere all at once? You know, there is like some incredible sure. filmmaking going Dude, on. Dude, have you seen Top Gun? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's like I haven't stopped. Like I'm trying to time it so I can sneak into theaters just to see that third act mm-hmm. over and over and over. There's still good shit being made. And, and I'm really excited about that, but there's just not more good shit. It feels like made. it's more on the margins and everybody's attention it always has been. is focused on, do you think so? I think so, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, we've had those amazing years where there's been 20 brilliant movies made, but I think for the most part, there's always been so much garbage and noise. I think the difference now, and I can use journalism as an example of this, and I say this very gently um, as to not broach into the like fake news discussion, but I think now we're able to see like all news outlets are able to quantify click-throughs and how much time people are spending in every given article. And like, if you're running a business, if you own a newspaper, like you need those clicks to pay the bills. Like Mm -hmm. it's fact, it's fact. So there's going to be this attraction to like publishing more of what gets clicks. And that kind of sucks. Yeah, that kind of sucks. It's not good for a cohesive, healthy society. It, it's not. And so like apply that cre- to creativity as well. It's like, it's not the super well-made brilliant with the exception of Top Gun, which is crushing it in the, in the mm-hmm. box office. Like it's not always, you know, like there, name a year when the highest grossing box office hit was also one best picture. Never, I would, never I would venture happens. never in the never history happens. of ever. And now we're sort of seeing Maybe that- Maybe gone with the wind. Perhaps, but that's really pushing it, pushing it way back. Yeah. But now we're able to see that in such a rapid fire, such with such vivid quantification, with such vivid metrics behind it. If you make some shitty prank video that has like a, has boobs in the thumbnail and some racy title and it gets clicks, like that's where the rewards are and that's what, going to be pursued. Um, that's a little bit antiquated because I don't think people are making content like that anymore. I think it's more sophisticated now, but I think it's to be super reductive. It's, it's easier to follow trends to find success as long as your metric of success is clicks and views and mm-hmm. plays and all of those things, which do have financial attachments to all of them than it is to just trying to pursue what is creatively, socially meaningful. Right. And as somebody who's squarely in the Gen X category. I grew up in a time when, you know, if you were to kind of leverage, you know, commerce, you were considered a sellout sellout, and like, just you would get trampled, right? And now that's completely flipped on its head where people are celebrated for that very thing that, that, you know, my generation would malign. Sure, and now that's the pursuit rather than like, right. like that's the goal. How it, can I get to that point exactly. where I can like take advantage of all these fucked up incentives yeah, and like cash for, in? Forget about the means, like the focus isn't on right. the means. The focus isn't on making the best music so you can become you know, rich and famous. The focus is just on how do I become rich and famous? And that's a, it, we do sound like two old men yelling at the I clouds know. right now saying that, but I think that social media has shown us that in, in a more vivid way than any other sort of artistic endeavor creative endeavor, Mm -hmm. Um, the path to success as it's defined there, money and fame has never been more vivid. You've, uh, You've taken efforts to, you know, create boundaries between yourself and and the internet. Like, didn't you get a, like a flip phone or something like yeah. that? Like I've noticed you've dropped off in terms of like posting on Twitter and stuff like that. I have a new rule with just with Twitter, which is 
every time I think of um, something clever, interesting, funny, insightful to tweet, instead of tweeting it, I just don't. Right. That's my rule. <laughs> Anytime I go to tweet, I have a new rule. It's just, uh-huh. just don't. And happier as a result. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I have this very idealistic vision, which is like, is there a world where I can just make great work, but divorce myself from the fame is not the right word, mm-hmm. but the fame part, you know, like Quentin Tarantino, maybe, you know, one of the one of the best living filmmakers right now, like, what does he take? Like eight years to make a movie? So for like seven years, you don't hear his name. Mm-hmm. He's not posting on Twitter. He's not like sharing his, he's not making IG stories to show you where he got lunch today. He's just fucking living his life, man, with no desire to share that. And his movies are great. You know, Spike Jones, who is one of my favorite creative brains in the universe, he's not out there trying to get clicks or likes and, you know, share cute, funny little things on Twitter so he can, for some external validation or remind the world that he exists. He's just living his life. And then making these brilliant creative things, whether they're short movies or Jackass 4 Mm. or like amazing Apple commercials or feature films or whatever it is that Spike Jones is up to. And I think that there's a lot of brilliant actors that are that are similar. You know, like I, I sat behind Tom Hanks, who's like the greatest ever at the Cannes Film Festival. So cool seeing him in real life. That motherfucker doesn't have Twitter, does he? There's no he, way. Oh yeah, no, he does. Does he tweet? Yeah, and he signs his tweets, Hanks with an X. Okay, yeah. I don't no, know how right. often I do he tweets. Him, but he mostly yeah, yeah. posts pictures of his typewriter. Right. But he's not out there. He doesn't, sure. he's not fighting to share his life. Brad Pitt doesn't work every day. So people will like give him as many hearts as possible on Instagram. And I think that at least what I take from that and call me naive and you're probably right, but I think that it, it's a demonstration of where these brilliant creatives, where their focus is and their focus is on what they do great and, and their craft. And I think that uh, in social media, there's sort of this weird perversion where it's less about your craft and it's more about marketing yourself, branding yourself. It's a stupid fucking buzzword, but like, that's what it's about. And I, ha- I, I had to do that. I don't think I could have succeeded and maybe I'm making excuses, but I don't think I could have had the success I had if I hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I'm older now and um, I'm much more confident now. And is there a world where I can both be successful in this, in this creative space, which is social media without being that? because that's never been exciting to me. And it's scarier to me now than it's ever been. Well, certainly you can't create anything timeless unless you have the facility or the skill to mete out distractions. And you have to be much more deliberate and intentional about making sure that you have the time to invest in your creativity without getting, without having to like, just be scrolling all the time. like. It used to be like we were bored. Now boredom is optional and most people opt for mindless scrolling and it's so addictive that you have to like, you know, like you had to go and get a different phone in order to like protect yourself, right? Like it's crazy that that's the society that we live in. Our weak, feeble monkey brains just cannot compete with those algorithms. It is so interesting. I try to read a book. You can't read a book. Read a book or look at TikTok, it's like there's no, there's no competition there. It's like having a bowl of kale or like having a, a, a dozen donuts. Like if there's no, your brain wants one thing and that's a very hard thing to compete with. And it's funny cause you're bringing this up sort of as a, from a consumption perspective. And before I was 
sharing purely as a sharing mm-hmm. perspective. But the consumption stuff is really scary to me. Like I've quit, I no longer use my flip phone because it's so extraordinarily burdensome. Like there's something satisfying about it, which is like, I saw that like a, a major super movie star whose kids go to school at the same preschool my kid went to school last year. He carried it and he's like one of the most famous people alive. And it's like, you have to be so confident in your own success that you're willing to just say, fuck you to everyone to carry a flip phone. Cause I couldn't respond to texts. Right. Most texts I never got. Like send me an iMessage while I'm on my flip phone. It's just gone. <laughs> and like, even like responding to my wife, like I couldn't text back. You don't mm-hmm. text back. You have to like wait till you can call them and then call them back. And I hope to get to a place in my life, a place of both confidence and success. I'm not there yet where I can just literally kind of say fuck off to the whole world, except for like the four people that have my cell phone and embrace that. But I'm like, I'm not there yet. Like I, I blew my dad off one too many times where he's like, didn't you get the picture I sent you, buddy? Uh-huh. Or like my kid called me and like, I didn't. It's just incompatible trying to with FaceTime like the way me. society with works. Life. But you could be like, like I'm thinking of Paul Sorvino and Goodfellas, like where he wouldn't even get on the phone. Other people would knock on his door and tell him what that somebody called, you there's, know, and tell him what they said. There's this amazing book written in like 1980 by Paul Fussell called Class. And it's about social classes, socioeconomic classes. And the highest class is called the X class, which is a class like above and beyond. I might be butchering this. And what they have in common with the lowest class, which are the destitute, is that like the richest people in the world never handle money and don't have to deal with phones or anything like that. And then the destitute Mm. have no money to handle and they don't deal with phones or other people (laughs) or anything like that. So like there is this, the polar ends of the spectrum, you get to that place where you no longer have to be burdened yeah, with this yeah, stuff. Yeah. But I'm somewhere right in the middle. And yeah, and it, it sucked. And it's like, why don't you just delete TikTok? I don't, I don't have that level of restraint. It's I don't have that now. in me. It's hard. I, I have the luxury of being older. And so TikTok is less alluring to me because I'm just, I'm sort of aged out of that a little bit. Have you ever spent a day on it and had its, had its no. algorithm figure you out? Don't, no. Yeah, don't. I will It'll be like, that. oh, we got ourselves a slightly older guy here. We got a Gen <laughs> X or okay, let's see what he's into. We know exactly Boom. what Let to me show feed this you guy. exactly what to show you. <laughs> right. Mine's like all news clips and like weird shit and smart stuff. It's amazing and terrifying. Mm. As somebody with a, a, a tenuous relationship with with kind of the fame that you have, it'll be interesting to see what happens when you return to New York where you're so highly recognizable. I mean, you're so of a piece with New York City, the city that's your muse, like the, everybody will celebrate the fact that you've returned there. And I would imagine in Los Angeles, you can kind of navigate things without too much hassle, but that's gonna kind of go out the window when you go back to New York. Yeah. I mean, yes, um, but it's weird. It's like, I don't know, I was talking to my older brother, Van, and I was frustrated because we were somewhere and there was like too many people near me or something. And I was like, I fucking just can't handle being around people. I was like, I've got to get back to New York City. And he was like, Casey, <laughs> it's the biggest city. It's the most densely populated city in the country. And I was like, yeah, but New York City, you're always surrounded by people, but you're also completely alone all the time. And, and you're on the move. Like in New York, someone will honk at you or wave at you. 
but I've been running with you in New York and in LA and observed like what happens when people notice you and want a piece of you. Yeah. I, yeah it's I, different in New York, it's, it's pretty casual. In LA, they wanna just stop you and it turns into like a whole thing that you gotta extricate yourself Well, it's from. funny though, like my favorite thing in the world is New York City, like if someone recognizes you there, somebody recognizes me there, they just act like they know me. It's okay, see what's up. And it's like, and like, that's it. Mm -hmm. And if it's, that's a, what I mean. it's, yeah. if it's a tourist or someone else, it's like, they have all these requests, like be holding my daughter, feeding her lunch. I'm like, yo, come over here, take, come take a picture of my family. And it's like, dude, boundaries. So there's that, but also, you know, I don't, New York's just such a different beast. It's such a, like a, there's such an insane level of kind of social Darwinism there where it's like, life in New York City is fucking miserable. It smells like trash. It's so expensive. It's crowded, it's cold, it's concrete. Like life there is not nice. And because of that, it makes it hard to have like a chill life there. So if you're willing to deal with all the bullshit that is living in such a harsh place, it means you're one kind of person. And it weeds out sort of the kinds of like normal sane humans that don't wanna deal with that level of, of difficulty every day. And that kind of person that you're left with are sort of people that I, I, I identify with more so than you know that kind of chill lifestyle, that laid back lifestyle that, you know, let me get a selfie mm. lifestyle. Right. But you know, you enjoy your surfing. That's I have change. this. I have this um, vision that will probably fall apart quickly. But I'm going to surf in New York City. Oh, really, dude? New Jersey has like some of the best waves in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shorter season. Are you bringing your truck? I'm keeping oh, my said, truck. Yeah, you're driving your truck. I'm right? keeping my truck mm -hmm. in New York. I'm keeping all my surfboards, and like, so I know some great East Coast surfers. This is part of like bringing a little bit of mm -hmm. like what I learned here in Southern California about like loving and embracing the things in life that you just do for the love of the game, bringing those with me back to New York City. And I think I can. Right, no surf ranch though. Well, I just, you know, you gotta get on a plane to get <laughs> there from here. So it's just a little bit longer of a flight. Right, right, right. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Talk a little bit about the documentary. I was sure. hoping to be able to 
watch it before we talked, but I guess it's tied up with sales agents or something like yeah, that you know, right now. So I, I haven't seen it yet. I appreciate you but saying that. I've read about that. it. Because there's this interview that's online from South by Southwest where it's Christine Vachon and I speaking to a I journalist. I'm just gonna fucking out right now. It's a terrible interview. And the reason why is about one minute into the interview, it was so vivid that the interviewer had not seen the movie, but was pretending he had, which is such a dangerous place to be. And I regret not calling him out. And I remember in that moment, I should call him out right now, but it would have required sort of humiliating him. Even if I did it in the most gentle way, it would have required humiliating him. And I didn't wanna do that because he was interviewing me on behalf of the festival. But I regret it now, because now it's this video that's like permanently on the internet with this guy who hasn't seen the fucking movie. And he's asking me very misguided questions that I'm trying my best to keep him on the rails. But but there's our IndieWire, Rolling Stone. Yeah, there's been a variety. number of reviews there's from the festival. Yeah, there's a lot of information out there about it. But uh, the gist of the movie is, it's sort of the, the story of David Dobrik, who is a wildly successful YouTuber. And we talked about my sort of success on the platform earlier. David eclipsed anything I did as far as viewership, as far as influence, as far as engagement, as far as like really like defining a generation. He did that in a way that was so extraordinary. And I followed him around for two and a half years, capturing his story and capturing what it meant to be a YouTuber really from an insider's perspective. And in the end, things got really fucked up it's, this is both in the movie and literally what happened, but David called me and he's like, are you ready for the ending of your movie? And he was referencing a story that was coming out as being published about uh, a, a girl who was uh, raped by one of the people that was in his videos that he had since cut off and excommunicated himself from, but it was a very, very shitty story. And the role that his videos played in enabling that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, just to be abundantly clear, you know, David's wrongdoing certainly is like bad judgment and a bunch of bad decisions, but the actual physical acts that took place to victimize this young woman were done just by some asshole who, you know, David had a proximity to, but because he was the one with the influence, ultimately like he was held to account for what had transpired by this asshole that he kind of platformed. So it's a nuanced, uh, it, 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 the controversy itself was nuanced. And I think within there, he was, he was, he took the, I think necessarily so, but he, he took the brunt of it. And it was a, a downfall in social media, a downfall on YouTube that was extraordinary. And to this day, I can't think of a, of a faster, more aggressive fall from grace than the, the, the downfall he faced in light of this story coming out. And that was compounded by the other story that came out about his buddy, what's his name? Jeff yeah. Wittick, who suffered a brain injury as a result of participating in this stunt where David was operating a crane in a shallow lake and swinging him around and he hit his head. Yeah, you know, the, I think the opening line of the movie is me asking or me reminding David about this question that I had asked him years earlier in filming, which is that, you know, I've identified this pursuit because I myself felt it when I was doing my daily videos, but I've watched it happen over and over and over with, with a lot of top creators, which is that like sensationalism equals views. 
and that endless pursuit, like you get the view, sensationalism gives you views, so more sensationalism, more views, and you just keep chasing that tail until something extraordinary happens that's not good. And you think about Logan Paul and what happened to him early in his career, which was just completely torpedoed by his own shitty judgment. And it forced him to completely reinvent who he was. And there's you know a dozen mm-hmm. other creators that have reached that sort of global superstardom level that have then sidelined their own careers because they're chasing after something that is dangerous, exploitive, stupid, harmful, and something atrocious comes from it and it ends their career. And that's exactly what happened to him. And I think it's whether, or talking about you know one of his closest friends being horribly injured, almost killed in pursuit of a stunt or uh, a young woman being victimized in pursuit of a, a funny scene. It's all part of a much bigger discussion, which is like, where does accountability lie? Certainly it lies with the creator. Uh, and I think David does, I think he does a pretty fair job in the movie of kind of owning that and, and you know, addressing that. Does he that. own that? Because my sense was that there is a, a, a sort of lack of self-awareness. There's certainly a lack of self-awareness. to really grok the severity of I, I the think situation. A- absolutely there is, absolutely there is. And I think that those sorts of things take time. Um, and I'm, I'm, without defending him, I think that those sorts of things say take time, but I do know him and I know his character. He's not an apathetic person, but I think you're, you race to a place of wanting to defend yourself when things like this happen. Mm-hmm. And that can come across as a lack of self-awareness or understanding. But you know, there's a back and forth he and I have on in the movie where you know, I say like, understanding you didn't know what had transpired that night that this young woman was assaulted, but looking back at it now, you still like let this guy who had a history of abuse, leverage a fame and an influence that you had created to attract these young girls to try to connect with them in a, in a, in a way that was obviously predicated on, on something sexual. And I was like, you know, don't you see that that's grossly inappropriate? And he's, he says very honestly, like I didn't see it then, mm-hmm. but of course I see it now, it's fucking disgusting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't have to be intentional, but it's so it doesn't severely uh, kind of nonchalant about the whole thing. Right? Absolutely. And you have these powerful incentives that are driving you towards that place of more and more and more crazier, crazier, crazier. And his, his whole thing was like each stunt would be more outrageous than the one prior. I mean, it is qualitatively different in some sense from what you were doing, which is kind of these mini stories every day. It wasn't about doing extreme things like that, that would Look, I mean, the only thing that he and I had in common where, is that we both put videos on YouTube. Yeah. But um, at the end of it all, and I say this without absolving him or any other creative of their wrong, who's had a downfall like he had of their wrongdoing. But, you know, he is obviously the story, but I presented him more as a case study. And I think a lot of the more established traditional media reviews of the movie that came out of its premiere in South by Southwest got that very much so, which is that like- There will be another, this will happen again and again. Sure, but also before he was, you know, before he was canceled, before he had every contract that he had with every brand canceled and before YouTube cut him off and before he faced all these very severe consequences, before that he had 7 billion views, 7 billion. That's more views than every Super Bowl since the inception of the Super Bowl until this year combined. Mm-hmm. Seven billion views. So seven billion views saying to him, "Good job, man. 
Here's right. some money, keep going. We wanna see more. Here's a thumbs up, we love you. Keep and the going. money's crazy. And the money's crazy. So, and these uh, are young people. They're young There's people. There's zero oversight or regulation. I know you're friends with, with Steve-O. Um, you know, the obvious, you know, analogy is to something like Jackass, but- I, I mean, I know, think Jackass, Jackass- is like highly, like they go into those stunts, you know this, like they've, they've figured it all out. They have safety protocols and measures in place. Like it's a very different I, beast. I think Jackass is a very, very good example of how you're supposed to do that, which is Jackass is, every member of Jackass that's on camera is there under entirely contractually consensual terms. Everyone there knows exactly what they have to gain and what the price is for that, like this, it is, it is well-defined on Jackass, the lack of power dynamic. There is no power dynamic on Jackass. It is, it is, this is what we're doing. Are you part of this or are you not? And if you're part of this, you know what you're signing up for. And I think in the creator space, it's, it's an antithetical to that. No one knows. Mm-hmm. You're just a kid walking around the video camera trying to capture moments of sensationalism or create moments of sensationalism. And if you're on the other side of that and you're like, shit, I'll do anything for fame. Well, what does that mean? And where can that lead? And that can lead to really devastating places. And I, I think that this is a, a very challenging discussion to have because it's so nuanced. I think what is very easy is to point to uh, specific outcomes and specific happenstance and say, well, that was fucked up. He's stupid, he should have never done that. You know, Logan should have never walked into that forest in, in Japan. And it's like, sure, but what about the day before he did that when he was celebrated for doing very similar shit mm-hmm. for years? Right, so and it's it, less about pointing fingers at individuals and more about, Illuminating, you know, these problematic aspects of the with ecosystem. a big asterisk, which is again, I, I, I as somebody it, who's benefited tremendously. No, from, no, that's yeah. not the asterisk. The asterisk is that, like, I don't, I'm, I don't want to defend uh-huh. these individuals that have done fucked up shit on these platforms. Like, the ownership is theirs. They are, they need to own that, and whatever consequences they might face. And that's certainly the case in my documentary. Is I don't absolve him of any of his wrongdoing or any of his poor judgment. But I think you can have both of these discussions. I think that it's very necessary to examine what happened in this one person's career that led to such turmoil. Mm -hmm. But also asking why did that happen? Like in what world has that been enabled? I think is a very fair, much harder question. And I hope that that my documentary is able to sort of elevate that. Yeah, what's interesting, and I say this as somebody who hasn't seen the movie, but my sense is that you got involved in it because you followed him around, you followed David around for a couple of years, right? Yeah. So when when you first began that journey, it was more about like this is the next generation of creators, and I want to kind of tell the story of what the behind the scenes of this is really like. Like, how does this actually function? Yeah, and I mean, then it became something Rich, else even entirely. more specifically. Like, I I loved David. Like, I still have a tremendous fondness for him, even though this movie is very critical of of his actions. So much so that it's it's you know he and I no longer have a, a friendship mm-hmm. because of this movie. But I had a tremendous fondness for him both personally and professionally, his videos were really funny. And I was part of that audience that was able to sort of turn a blind eye to the more questionable moments in the video because you assume what you're seeing is entirely consensual. And I saw in him a superstar when he, before he was successful, I said, this kid's going to fucking explode and he did. And that was the story that I wanted to tell. My own experience on YouTube was so unbelievably 
unexpected and overwhelming that I wanted to tell that story, but I needed somebody else to tell it through that was more interesting and better looking than me. And David was that character. And yeah, like I look, I spent two hours interviewing his high school teachers and I went back to his high school in Chicago and met with his tennis coach. And I interviewed his parents and I hired a Hungarian translator so I could interview his grandmother in Slovakia. And none of that's in the movie. That's not the movie at all. Mm -hmm. The movie is about this one night mm -hmm. and what that means. Because I think that if I, I was sort of forced to confront an intellectual honesty, which is what is this movie? And, can you tell the story about what his high school years were like without it feeling like you're trying to make him a more empathetic character when really like this was about this one night. Right. And there were a lot of those very challenging narrative considerations that I had to make as a filmmaker before I could make them as a, as a friend. I think right. that the latter was irrelevant. The fact that he was my friend became irrelevant if I was gonna have any uh, integrity behind the movie. And the integrity of the movie ultimately required a fracture in the relationship, right? Like he hasn't spoken to you. I, I mean, I don't- Has he seen the movie? Yeah, of course, mm -hmm. um, he hates it. But I don't think that, at the end of the day, I have to live with myself. And, sure. um, you know, like integrity is an interesting word because it's like, well, what about your integrity as a friend to David? And I think that's really hard thing for me to confront. But, you know, I come back to this place of like this, was not what I signed up for. He said those words to me and I think it's very fair for me to say those words back. Like this is not what I signed up for. Meaning when he agreed to be filmed by you. Yeah. yeah. And when I agreed, when I decided to make a movie about him, you know, he's so psyched to make a movie when it's about his tennis coach in Chicago yeah. and, and you know, him selling out huge spaces to give talks to high school kids and college kids. Like that's really fun and exciting. But then it came about something much darker. And at the end of the day, I thought all I could do both for my own sense of responsibility and humanity was do everything I could to let him speak for himself and speak truth to what happened. And I think I gave him every opportunity in the world to do that. And I did my very best to make that abundantly clear in the movie. I'm not in the movie at all. Mm -hmm. I, it's a very traditional documentary. Mm -hmm. But he seems like, like he's still, doing his thing, right? Like what is the state of the union with like his- I cannot speak to that. Yeah, I can't speak to that. I wish him the best. I hope he finds, you know, a, a, a sense of fulfillment. He's young and I think he has a long way to go. And I, I hope he finds a, I hope he finds what it is that he's looking for. Right. And what is the deal with the movie? Like, I know that you premiered it at South by Southwest. Are you I mean, we, so trying we premiered to get it very right successfully now? at South by Southwest. We had amazing reviews. And I thought the reviews were gonna be much darker because typically Hollywood hates all things YouTube and I don't blame them. But the reviews, including from some very, very traditional film reviewers were really, I thought very, uh, very certainly positive, but I think very insightful and smart. And a lot of people, got what I was going for. Um, and I don't say that in a dismissive way. I just mean that like, I think it's really easy to watch the movie and sort of be just drawn into David's story and forget that there's a bigger, that there's a bigger underlying narrative. So very positive response, but yeah, we're still like trying to figure out distribution and where do you put a movie like this? And obviously I'm sitting on a unbelievably powerful distribution opportunity, which is my own YouTube mm -hmm. channel. But I think I'd rather let the movie die and nobody ever sees it, then put it on my YouTube channel. It just does not feel like an appropriate place for a hour and 40 minute documentary for myriad reasons. And I think that 
probably paramount to those reasons is I think it would really dominate my own identity on YouTube. And I don't, I don't, I don't you want a little bit of distance between yeah, you and that work. And, and yeah, look, if, if it's that. on, uh, if it's on a, like a Hulu, then I have that distance. And mm-hmm. I think people will be able to watch it with clear eyes. And if it's, you know, if it's anywhere, if people sit down in a, a theater at a film festival, they're able to watch it with sort of clear eyes. But if you go to my YouTube channel, where my audience was built on this backdrop of videos that are all thematically similar. And then one of those videos is an hour and 40 minute documentary about a sexual assault. I, I don't know that that's the context that I, I, I'm willing to share this movie with. Mm-hmm. So TBD basically. Yeah, just like, you know, sorry. We'll see. Nobody has to see it. <laughs> if you see me in the street, ask me, I'll let you watch it on my phone. All right. You would let me watch it on the phone. I, like I have to go through my distributor, distributors yeah. to like get them to send you a private link. <laughs> I mean, I'll just upload it to Vimeo and send you a link. I know it's really hard on the flip phone. Uh, yeah, I got a text. What do you want from me? Um, one thing I always wanted to ask you, as somebody who's who's really you know insightful and has a very incisive perspective on branding and marketing and kind of how brands hold themselves out to the world and how creators kind of navigate the creative space, I'm interested in 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 what you think about like where I could improve, like what we're doing here, like where what are we missing, to the extent that you have any familiarity with what goes on here? Like, where is an area that maybe I, 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 I don't see where I should be putting more focus and time and attention? Short answer is I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I mean that. Longer answer is that Ryan Holiday, who's a tremendous human and brilliant author, um, he and I have this conversation a lot and it's a much, I'm, I'm telling you the advice that I gave him mm-hmm. um, and I don't wanna own any of what he's done, but this is a discussion he and I have been having for five years. And maybe some of it's applicable here, which is that I think Ryan with his stoicism and like the, the unique focus that has been his career, whether he's doing public speaking or he's publishing one of, you know, a dozen books, that, half dozen books that he's written now, they all follow similar themes. And what I said to him, cause I've, I've, I've seen him speak publicly and it's so amazing is that this theme can be shared across other mediums. And like, I'll buy your physical book to access those themes that you're able to communicate so well. And I'll, I'll listen to your book on Audible cause you communicate those themes so well. I'll listen to you on podcasts. You can communicate those themes so well. And I'll certainly pay to watch you speak in real life. And it's like, what can you do on these other social media platforms to further that? Mm-hmm. And what he has done, which is really amazing, and he's finding wild success with it, is he does these YouTube videos where he talks to camera. And, and it's not like, hey guys, today here's my morning routine right. and my hair care products. It's Ryan being like, you know, talking about once said, you know, yeah, or talking yeah. about Marcus Aurelius and like how you apply that to life. And it's like, these are sort of the, the ponderings. Is that a word? The things that I, I pull from his books that I underline that mean so much to me. And now he's delivering them to me in a medium that actually mm-hmm. works better, which is these little clips. Still read his books. I just mean it's better than underlining a chapter and trying mm-hmm. to find that dog eared page. And that's been really brilliant. And I think, you know, Rich, between like your focus on health and these deeper conversations and so many other facets of this world that you uniquely represent so well that 
you could look at those themes and, and ask yourself, like, are there other places where I could express these in different ways while still keeping that message the same? And I don't know what that would be. Right. No, um, I think that's, that's- Even your cookbooks. That's wise Literally counsel. your cookbooks mm. have an absolute parallel to your podcast. They are the same thing. Like so many of your podcasts are about health and veganism and how you're able to do it and drawing energy from what you eat and shit like that. So a cookbook is a very natural extension of that. So thinking in those terms, like what else could you spin out of this amazing thing that you built over the Mm -hmm. last decade? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely worth thinking about. Uh, I've noticed that in Ryan too. And there's a a huge uptick in the frequency with which he's posting these clips and these videos. And and part of my own like this is just confessional like he's so good at talking he's to so camera good. or like and I'm like I can't I I hate talking to camera like the worst part of this podcast is when I have to do the intros and look <laughs> to camera and I like write out these little scripts and then I make I put I have like a teleprompter thing and I always feel like oh it's so like rigid and like I just want to be able to relax and just talk but every time I try to do that it's like a disaster. No, I get it. He's <laughs> he's found something and again it, it might not be right for you like that might not be right. it but it, if you draw a line to where you were as far as your audience size and your revenue from this podcast 10 years ago and you draw that line to where it is now I pro- I, I know you know it goes up into the right and it doesn't always have to you know grow kind of exponentially meaning that like you do something really fucking well. And the best way to find success is like apply patience and consistency to that. And it's sure. giving you everything Just you've a, got now. Practice this like is my old else. man advice. Cause all I wanna do when I move back to New York is make really good YouTube videos. I don't wanna do any of the other bullshit and to see if I can just find success doing the one thing that I know I'm really good at mm. instead of the other bullshit, which is just both distractions, but feels necessary. Maybe it's yeah. not, I gotta go. I know, can, I leave? can we do one more question? What time is it? It's one forty. Last thing, okay, just to put a button on it. To get to my kids. Um, just real quick for the creators or the creative people that are watching or listening to this, just leave us with a few words of kind of creative inspiration. I mean, you're known for these aphorisms around like you know you're tattooed with like do more and work harder and kind of this hustle porn sort of thing. You've matured a little bit beyond that, but you always have such good counsel when it comes to learning how to harness uh, your creative voice and and share it with the world. Sure, I I think the thing that I've come to appreciate more than ever is is the importance in having patience. I think that there's such a tendency, especially in a world where you're able to count your views um, in real time, that if it doesn't work today, it's never going to work. And, you know, like, I talked to Jimmy, Mr. Beast about this a lot. And that guy spent whatever, seven years making videos before he had one that broke a thousand views or something extraordinary like that. And now he's doing a billion views a month. Or my brother Van, who's the most brilliant mind on all of YouTube. And, you know, Van had this initial explosion of interest because he and I worked so hard to promote his first you know, his first videos. And mm-hmm. then I explained to him, I was like, look, it's all gonna go away. You're gonna find your baseline. Then you're gonna build from there. And he's been consistently uploading for a year, making the best work he can make. And now he's really building out what is gonna be a successful long-term career, making videos and putting them on the internet. Yeah, and it's been I really think cool that to watch that. it's extremely unsexy. It's extremely uninteresting. And no one wants to hear that it takes time, but it takes time. And I think if it's something that, especially if you're young and just getting into this, you don't want to invest, but patience is really 
the most undervalued aspect of succeeding in the world of media today. You have all the agency in the world. You don't need anything from anyone. But if you're not willing to commit the time to it, you're, you're never gonna find that success. 100%, we did it. And I achieved my goal of getting you to say, I gotta go. I gotta which go. Which I think you've said in every I podcast. Go. I like glanced at my watch like 10 times. <laughs> I was gonna say it before. I was like, I'm not gonna all say right. it. I'm not gonna say it. Cool. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste. Yeah.